A word about fellowship and associations, about the Christian life. Things we need to know to live faithfully and obediently to the Lord who saved us. So we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 14. And we'll read into the first verse of chapter 7. Just a reminder, those chapter and verse numbers were added much after the Bible was completed. Those are there for our assistance. Uh, So we will slip into chapter 7 and read that first verse. And if you're joining us online or watching the video later, we welcome you and we encourage you to come and be a part of God's people here to sit under the preaching of his word and to offer your praise to him. From the English Standard Version of God's Holy Word. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Amen and amen. Being yoked, that talks about relationships and connections. Uh, when uh, some yokes are broken, there are hard feelings. I don't know if you follow sports news in the NFL. There was a, a, a just a really astonishing trade announced when the Denver Broncos said, long-time pillar of the team, what is it, dozen years or more? Von Miller, the big linebacker, was being traded. That was his team, and they were going to put his name on the ring of honor in the stadium. Von Miller, and he's not going to wear The Broncos orange. He's going to another team because he's been traded. It was a business decision. Yeah, he had hard feelings. His team uh, were crying and the Broncos were happy they were getting a superstar or the the Rams. Uh, But it created hard feelings when he was being unyoked and then re-yoked with another team. But that's that was out of his hands. He was an employee and it was a business decision. Consider further how people sometimes unyoke themselves from one political party to join another. Have you seen that in the news? There's been a few cases. Every once in a while there's a case. Someone says, uh, I'm leaving the party and I'm going across the aisle to the other side. And regardless of which way the switch is, there are hard feelings and there are hard words all around. You turncoat, you traitor. The party left me, I didn't leave the party. And all of those things. But that illustration is actually a little more consistent with what we're going to look at here in our text today. Because usually someone has to change to remain true to their convictions. Or as I already alluded to with a comment uh, a minute ago about the pilgrims. Do you remember why those dissenters and separatists from the Church of England... They started out in a little city called Scrooby, England. Why did they leave? Why did they at first go to uh, Europe, flee England to go to Europe, and then from Europe come back to England to get on a boat to come to New England? Why? Because they needed to remain true to their convictions. They wanted to guard their associations. They could no longer submit Uh, to the Church of England and its requirements. They wanted freedom to worship. And even when they were in, where did they go? The Netherlands, um, somewhere. Even there, the the culture was different and that association troubled them. So they came to to the new world for a new start because they were concerned about their connections and associations. 
My friends, given the command of Scripture here to us, from verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, we should have similar concerns about our relationships, our connections, who influences us, who we partner with. This is especially important if we remember a few weeks ago what we read in chapter 5. Let me refresh your memory. Verses 14 and 15 of 2 Corinthians 5. The apostle was writing on behalf of all believers. He says, the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. In verse 15, and he died for all that those who live in Christ might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sakes died and was raised. There is a change that comes upon the Christian. When new life comes your way, when you are born again, you are not your own. You're living under God as your father, living in his kingdom, according to his precepts, serving his will. And that will require some, if not many, of your associations and partnerships to adjust and to change. Jesus said it perhaps the most bluntly of all when he said, you cannot serve two masters. Is Christ Jesus your Lord? Will you follow him? Will you be his disciple? Or will you be swayed by the scoffers and the mockers and the sinners. Let's take this text in in three sections this morning. First, let's look very clearly at the moral demand that is placed upon believers. It is a moral demand. It's a command of God. It's in the imperative. It comes through the Apostle Paul to the church of Jesus Christ. And it says very clearly, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Do not be unequally yoked. What is this metaphor? What is a yoke? We're not talking about, boys and girls, the the yellow part of the egg. That's a yoke, but that's spelled different. That's Y-O-L-K. Yoke here talks about a large wooden collar that was placed on the shoulders of two animals, whether two horses or two oxen. I suppose you could get a couple of donkeys and yoke them together. And you needed to have fairly equivalent beasts in your yoke to to pull the cart or the plow or the task at hand. If you had a ginormous ox, think big as a uh, hippopotamus, and then a little donkey, that would be unequally yoked animals. What would happen? Well, the donkey would want to go fast. He might go this way. Or the power of the ox would would over-push the donkey and... It wouldn't work. The task would not be accomplished properly. And in fact, the task could be in jeopardy if you were unequally yoked as animals. So the common metaphor, which everyone in the ancient world would understand when they used animal power as opposed to trucks and cars and tractors, they would understand this. Yeah, to be unequally yoked is a problem. And here he's saying, Christians should not be yoked with unbelievers. Pretty clear. One uh, commentary says, The image of being unequally yoked draws to mind two animals unsuited to work together. A large ox and a small mule are not meant to plow side by side. They will consistently be moving in opposite directions. Similarly, believers and unbelievers have different operating principles and aims. We're different than the world. James Denny, the preacher from Scotland about 120 years ago, said, This text prohibits every kind of union uh, which separates the character and interest of the Christian uh, from of anything, excuse me, which separates the interest of the Christian and destroys their distinctiveness and integrity. They lose their distinctiveness and integrity. If you're in a partnership and you're getting overrun or you're hindered, that's what this command addresses. 
He's not saying that you can't have a relationship with an unbeliever. I hope and pray, indeed, I will be after you. You should have friends who are unbelievers. And some people think that's too strong a statement. You need to have genuine friends, people you know and care for that aren't believers so that you can present Christ to them. Yet we also need to obey this command, which is so clear. Don't be yoked with unbelievers lest they destroy your character and your distinctiveness or undermine your Christian integrity. And notice here that the distinctive revolves around faith. The distinction revolves around faith. In the list that he gives uh, in uh, verse 15, he, he explicitly says, what portion does a believer have with an unbeliever? He's talking about believers and unbelievers. And what's the difference? Belief. He's not talking about other socioeconomic differences. He's not talking about cultural distinctives or political distinctives. He's talking about belief. And we, knew we need to hear afresh the call to esteem belief in God, belief in the Lord Jesus Christ as one of our highest priorities. One of the most important points of distinction in the world today. You see, Paul had to put that back on the Corinthians in the original audience because some had come to Corinth uh, calling themselves apostles. They were really false apostles. And they were presenting some things perhaps about Judaism or about Moses. And they were undermining faith in Jesus. They were chipping away at faith in Christ alone. And so Paul is really addressing them. If anyone preaches to you a gospel other than what was delivered by the apostles, let him be accursed, says Paul. Christ alone is our Savior and Lord. Don't let people mess with that. So Paul, in effect, was speaking about some in the church of Corinth who were undermining faith in Jesus and joy in the gospel of Jesus whether we call them legalists or Judaizers or simply preachers of a false gospel, they were in the crosshairs and they were not promoting faith in Christ. And this command is is very clear as you saw the citation from the Old Testament. We'll get into this at length. But notice what was being called for in this Old Testament citation in verse 17. Therefore, meaning if you are described as a believer, go out from their midst and be separate from them. Touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. Separateness, not being yoked with unbelievers, not being yoked with the world, is what we're called to. The Christian is born into the kingdom of God, out of the kingdom of men and sin. And it changes our priorities. It changes our perspective. Even as Paul wrote in chapter 5, we don't regard people the same way. We don't even regard Christ the same way now that we know him. (coughs) Yet before we move on from the moral demand, I think it's important uh, for me as someone who knows the scriptures to remind you with two footnotes that discretion is expected. You know, it's, it's always a dangerous thing for someone to take one verse of the Bible and make it their only point in life. And they go around making it their personal ministry to unyoke everyone. We've read other verses in the Bible. We have the mind of Christ and the help of the Holy Spirit. This verse is true and the command is upon us. But there is discretion required. Here's two, two considerations. First, let me define discretion. It's the quality of behaving or speaking in such a way as to avoid causing offense or revealing private information. Or further, the dictionary says the freedom to decide what should be done in a particular situation. Discretion means how we obey is important. And it takes some work. So don't amputate every unbeliever you see from your life. 
And let me say, give you a couple examples of how this discretion is, is used. First, uh, if someone is married to an unbeliever, it doesn't mean you go home and on Monday file for divorce. How can I say that? Well, I've read 1 Corinthians. I hope you've read 1 Corinthians. And in chapter 7, Paul gave instructions. And you remember back then the gospel was spreading. People were getting converted and maybe their spouse wasn't. So it had to be said, especially for areas where conversions were new and there were young Christians, such as at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 12 says, To the rest I say, not I but the Lord, that if a brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, a wife, that means yoked, and she's not a believer, the scriptures say, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And verse 13 flips that around. If a woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. God's clear. Uh, not, don't take the, the unyoking scripture and destroy marriages where it may work for the salvation of the unbelieving partner. What does that tell us? That tells me that yes, we should have unbelieving friends if our aim is to see them converted. Now, if you have unbelieving friends and you hang out with them uh, when you're not in church on Sunday because you want to be like them and you want to fit in with the world and you don't want them to think you're a square, you want them to think you're a cool cat. Sorry for the dated references. That's not a healthy relationship and friendship with an unbeliever, is it? I, I think... 1 Corinthians 7 and the comments about husbands and wives remind us that there are more important things to look to, the, the salvation of the unbeliever. You see, the church isn't all about just having our own holy ivory tower in the world till Jesus comes. We're on a mission to make disciples of all the nations and to teach them what we've been taught, to see them baptized and have a hope of heaven. That's our mission. So there must be a nuance to this yoke that we have to understand. And the marriage example tells us first and foremost. And it's important with marriage. You probably only hear this verse preached on at weddings. But it goes far beyond that. It is important for, for marriages though. I will not perform a marriage of someone who is marrying an unbeliever. And in all my years here, people come and say, oh, would you marry us? Only once have I had to say no. Because it was clear that this, uh, this is a long time ago, this believing woman was smitten with this fellow and he didn't have a clue what it was to be a Christian. And I just had to say, I'd be happy to meet with you and do some Bible studies and let's see how we can bring the Lord into this relationship. But they walked away and went somewhere else. Derek Prime, who is such a wise pastor and commentator, he, he points out why it's important in marriage to be equally yoked. He said not to be able to share the joys and privileges of that relationship with a marriage partner sows seeds of potential division rather than of unity. More importantly, it dishonors God, he says, since God deserves first place in all our affections. So it does apply to marriage and entering into a marriage. But if you're already in a relationship, use discretion how this is to be obeyed. Another footnote here is don't use this to say, okay, so-and-so doesn't believe everything I believe, so I'm not going to associate with him. He's not a Calvinist. He's not an Arminian. He's not a predispensationalist. He's not a young earther. He's not an older. And we begin to take our views on certain doctrines and label people as unbelievers if they're not 100% on our checklist. I don't think that's what the apostle here is looking for. He's looking at the fundamentals. Who is Jesus? What is the gospel? What are Christians called? Doctrine of first importance. And on that we draw a line. For instance, I will not participate in an interfaith worship service. There was a lot of that after 9-11 or after a crisis interfaith where all these different faith leaders, don't get me started, I hate the label. Faith in what, by the way? 
It's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who said, I alone am the way to the Father. No one comes to the Father but by me. But an interfaith service is out of bounds for me because these are unbelievers and I don't know who they're worshiping. But we have to use discretion. Sometimes the the community will ask people from all different churches to come together after a crisis to a meeting of citizens. I could do that. I could go and represent our fellowship at a meeting of citizens to seek the common good of our community. But you have to draw a line when it comes to worship. You get the idea. We have to be careful not to, as somebody said, split theological hairs and build walls when people disagree on minor issues or opinions. We can't pull away. And I have to say that because that's the trend today. If you don't hate who I hate, you're under suspicion. If you don't love what I love and say it loud and clear and wear the right hat, you're in trouble. I'm not so sure about you. Friends, think of ancient Corinth. How diverse in every way. And yet out of that cosmopolitan, worldly city, God called to himself, the poor and the rich, the gifted and the impoverished. And he created a new body of believers in Christ. What a beautiful thing is the local church, the body of Christ. Do not build walls and unyoke yourself from others whom Christ has died for and who are walking faithfully with him. Enough said. Then the, the, the command is clear. And the command stands on uh, some spiritual realities. You can see that right after this command is given in verse 14, uh, questions are asked. And there are five uh, rhetorical questions that are asked. But they start with these foundational spiritual realities. And we can just go through and pick out it. I want to pick out just the first part of each of those pairs. Because yes, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? So let's just pick out the pairs and see if we fit the description. We have righteousness, light, Christ, which is uh, Messiah, the anointed one. Then we have belief. What portion does a believer share with unbelief? And finally, what's the last uh, foundational spiritual reality? The temple of God. We are the temple of the living God. Are those things true of you? Well, if you're a Christian, they should be true of you, that you have the righteousness of Christ. You're pursuing Christ and righteousness. You're pursuing living in the light. Christ is your Messiah, your Savior. You have faith in him. And what about that last reality, temple? Hmm. We are the temple of the living God. I don't, some, don't feel like an architectural construction, but it's a metaphor. And it, it's a significant metaphor in the Bible at this point. And we'll, we'll reference Peter in a minute. But what was the temple? It was the place that was set apart. And even within the temple, there was the Holy of Holies. So temple here stands for set apartness for the worship of God. It stands for holiness unto the Lord. And that's what's echoed in the concluding verse of this passage. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion. If you are holy and set apart for the Lord, that's the beginning. Bring it to completion. These are spiritual realities describing the Christian life. So those five things should be true of us. And isn't it uh, implied when he gets to the climax and says, we are the temple. He's saying, look at who you are. And then let's look at the contrasting qualities. Darkness, lawlessness, belial, unbelief, idols. Pretty clear. The difference between right and wrong, light and darkness, uh, those are widely known. You may be asking yourself, who or what is Belial? Uh, And uh, what we need to know, and it may say in your footnote, that that's a reference to Satan. It was a word frequently used in the Old Testament. 
It literally means worthlessness or hopeless ruin. Um, you, you can think about taking out the trash, and in your trash bag you would put Belial. But sometime between the end of the Old Testament and the New Testament, among God's people, Belial became a name for Satan. Just in the development during that intertestamental 400 years of silence on God's part, they gave that name to Satan. So when Paul uses it, and if there were any Jewish-leaning folks in Corinth that heard it, they would say, do you want Messiah or do you want worthlessness? The contrast for them would be stark. The emphasis with all five of these pairs is the starkness of the contrast and Each of these five rhetorical questions is so phrased in the Greek as to call forth, almost without thinking, a negative reply. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? None. What fellowship has light with darkness? None. What accord has Christ with Belial? None. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? None. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? None. You know how convinced Jews were about the sanctity of the temple? Do you remember there was a riot caused when Paul took uh, one of his associates into the temple and they thought maybe an unconverted person was brought into the temple. The whole city was in a riot because you are defiling our temple. Or even the pagans. When they thought Artemis of the Ephesians was under assault, did they defend their idol? Christian, these are spiritual realities of great importance. But before we move on from these five sentences, let's just take a quick look at the verbs, the connecting statement. I didn't find much of this at all in the commentaries, but it jumps out at me. If Paul's talking about not being unequally yoked, He's talking about relationships. Each of these rhetorical questions uses a verb to talk about relating. Maybe that could enlighten what it means to be yoked, right? I'm looking at synonymous parallelism. Let's look at those pairs, the verbs, partnership, partnership. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Being unequally yoked is usually applied in in marriage contexts and in business contexts. So if you want to start a new business with someone and you're talking to the elders, they say, well, you know, your business partner is not a believer. That could spell trouble. But there's a spiritual quality to this term partnership. It has to do with sharing. We see it in Hebrews chapter 3. I'll just uh, have a verse or two on some of these, but not all of them. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, says this, Therefore, oh, and I love the description of the believers, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He's talking of Christians as holy brothers and uses that term partnership, and the ESV has it here, you who share in a heavenly calling. Well, if I'm a Christian, what share in a heavenly calling do I have? I have it all. I have a great commission. It's been given to me. It won't be taken away. It's mine. I have an inheritance. I have a right to it. I have responsibilities. It's a partnership, meaning vested with responsibilities. That helps us understand the question. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? The second verb used in our <clears throat> rhetorical questions is one known to you, koinonia, fellowship. When Paul writes that second uh, question, he says, or what fellowship has light with darkness? What koinonia has light with darkness? Well, if you're watching the sunrise, you see the blending of light and dark. But think of midnight and think of noon. Light and darkness. They don't really participate in each other because when you introduce one, you destroy the other. The word koinonia really means participation. You're involved. If you go to an NFL football game, most likely you sit in the stands. You do not participate as much as we might dream about, oh, I could make that catch. I could make that tackle. 
If you put on the jersey and you're paid to go on the field, then you're participating. That's koinonia. Christians need to understand that for other purposes, right? If you're a Christian and you want to have fellowship with the church, you can't do that staying at home. You can't do that in your car or just sitting at the side of the room. You've got to participate. You've got to jump in. And so that's a picture of yoking and partnership. Third verb used uh, is one of these uh, one time in the New Testament verbs, accord, symphoneo. It sounds like symphony, doesn't it? Symphoneo. It's a verb to symphonize. And if you know anything about symphonies, what is a symphony? It's not a room full of clarinets all just playing music. It's all sorts of instruments coming together to do something that is harmonious. Something that in togetherness is more beautiful than isolation. A symphony. So this verb means to agree, to consent, to be of the same feeling, to have harmony as the sound produced by several instruments could produce. Symphoneo. So the third pairing. What symphony has Christ with Belial? Christ is at work. He doesn't use the same tools as the devil. He doesn't have the same goals as the devil. He has, doesn't have the same character as the devil. They're in discord. There's no contact. Friends, with unbelievers, you will see that you cannot write a symphony in a partnership with unbelievers when it comes to the the most important things of life. The other two verbs, one means portion or allotment, and the last one means agreement, alliance. Can a Christian hold these deep types of relationships with unbelievers in the cause of Christ when God calls you to live for Christ in his kingdom? We have to be wary of our partnerships, connections, and joining with unbelievers. How how do we practically judge that? Again, I come back to say, if a relationship that you have with an unbeliever is more about you becoming like them than them becoming like you, that's a danger. That's a yellow flag. But we're to be in the world. We're to be salt and light. We're to have Christian, unchristian friends, non-Christian friends, non-believing people, so that we might love our neighbor and tell them of the love of God. But when one begins to influence and control the other, when the symphony wants to go with the other's tune, and you start marching to the beat of a different drummer, that is what the command here would prohibit. Let's look finally at these promises made to believers. Did you see the promises? Did you know that we're given promises? Well, when we read chapter 7, verse 1, it said these promises. So hopefully you saw the promises. Did you? Fess up now. Did you see the promises? Since we have these promises, where were the promises? Well, let's look at the Old Testament citation. Okay? The Old Testament citation in our passage between verses 16, 17, and 18. I love it when a, when a Bible takes something like that and offsets it so it stands out. And if you need to know where those are from, usually there are footnotes in your Bible that say where it's from. I have to tell you, though, these Old Testament citations are already um, uh, being used by the Apostle Uh, uh, in in compact form, he cites five or six different Old Testament passages that overlap and blend to tell us something. So sometimes it's a phrase from one Old Testament verse and a phrase from another Old Testament verse. Paul's inspired by the Holy Spirit and he assembles these because of their common theme and promises. So these five or six different Old Testament passages, some come from Leviticus 26. That first phrase also has a little bit of Ezekiel 37 in it. Then as it moves on, you've got Isaiah 52, verse 11, then some more Ezekiel, chapter 20 this time, and something from 2 Samuel 7, I'll explain that one, and finally some Isaiah 43. Paul knows his Bible. And what's our takeaway? Well, this is no good because it's all several verses brought together. No, our takeaway is this. 
the Bible has some themes that were important and mentioned across Israel's history. And perhaps one of the biggest themes is about our biggest need. When God first created the world, he put man, Adam and Eve, in a garden and had fellowship with them. He walked with them in the cool of the evening. Our life with God in the garden. But because of our sin, God sent us out of the Garden of Eden. And and there was a curse upon mankind. And we all inherited Adam and Eve's sinful nature. We are born in sin. There is no one who is righteous. No, not one. Not one. And we can't save ourselves. We can't atone for our own sin. But God sent one. We call him a second Adam. The Christ. A descendant of Eve, the mother of all the living. A descendant of David, a prophet, a priest, and king. Born to us, we know him as Jesus. Took on human flesh and lived perfectly. And in his sinlessness and in his divinity, he could offer himself in our place for our sins and save us and redeem us. Reconcile us, as Paul's been explaining in chapter 4 and 5. We have Christ. The great theme is how will we be able to be reconciled to God and have a relationship with God? And these promises here answer that. These promises tell us first that God will dwell with us. God will dwell with us. Remember Paul was asking what does the temple have to do with idols and everybody says nothing. And then he says, we are the temple of the living God, as God has said. And he begins these quotations. I will, this is a promise. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. I will make my dwelling among them. The word dwelling is related to the word for tabernacle. God did just that. He called his people out of Egypt and he put a tabernacle in the midst of all their tents. And he traveled with them in the wilderness. When they came to the promised land and David was king, there was a temple to be built that God might dwell in the midst of his people. The palace of God, the house of God. That's what the word temple meant. House, palace of God. And he dwelt among his people, but it was behind curtains and the high priests had limited access to him, but he was with his people. And it kind of made you long for the day when you and I would have access to him. But in Christ, in the work of Christ, the veil of the, the curtain uh, in the temple, holy place was torn in two from top to bottom. And as we're told in Ephesians chapter 2, Christ has taken away the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. And all who believe in Christ have access to God. He is our high priest and we come not bringing animals blood or grain offerings, not having to commute all the way to Jerusalem, but we come spiritually to Christ who presents us to God the Father. God dwells with us because he has sent his son, Jesus Christ. Well, wait, that doesn't, I don't hear temple language in Christ. Well, Christ is the cornerstone of this dwelling See if you recognize these verses. I'll rattle a few off. Acts chapter 4, the early preaching of Jesus. Acts 4 verse 11. This Jesus, the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, has become the cornerstone. Why are you calling Jesus a really big stone? A cornerstone to a building. That's the most important part. It lays the direction for the whole construction. Christ is the cornerstone of the temple, the spiritual temple that God was building that he might fulfill his promise to dwell among us and be our people. Ephesians 2.20 talks about how the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, comma, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Or most clearly in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, 6 and 7. For it stands in scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Notice the connection of belief with the work of Christ. So it continues, the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling. 
Belief is that important to be part of this dwelling with God on earth. And Peter, in previous verses in chapter 2, described Christians as living stones. So this whole temple promise is coming to pass. Christ the cornerstone, the apostles helping with the construction. And he says in 1 Peter 2, 4 to 6, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The problem of sin is solved in Christ and God dwelling with his people, spiritually, the temple of God, and having a place. So Paul reminds them of those promises and he writes to them with Christian uh, emphasis that this is fulfilled in Christ. We Christians are the temple of the living God. By the way, this verse has a lot of challenges for dispensationalists who think that the Jews will need to rebuild the temple and have a red heifer and do something in Jerusalem as part of God's plan. God's sacrifice has been made and accepted in Christ alone, once for all sin, past, present, and future. There's no need of a physical temple anywhere on earth the Lord is our temple and we're living stones we're a part of that and what's the consequence if I'm part of the temple of God I cannot be yoked with unbelievers I must be holy I must be distinct separate and pure and we need to cleanse ourselves and bring holiness to completion if this promise has come true there's a second promise in here and I think We don't want to miss it. A second promise in this passage. uh, The the temple and uh, then the separateness. How about verse 18? Verse 18 brings in uh, these verses from 2 Samuel. We'll talk about in a minute. But Paul writes in verse 18, And I, this is the Lord God, maker of heaven and earth, I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Friends, if that's true of Christians, if we have God as our Father, we have to adjust to the the family priorities and the family activities and be careful how we interact with the world and yoke ourselves in the world because we have a Father and we must be about our Master's business. In the Old Testament context, the Lord was speaking to David. 2 Samuel chapter 7, David had wanted wanted to build the temple himself and God sent Nathan to tell David sorry David I love you but you don't get to build the temple sorry David's crushed but he says I'll I'll let your son Solomon build the temple and David's hope is revived and David does all he can to get Solomon all the stuff to be successful he helps with the collection he prays he's he sees Solomon go to work But in the midst of that, in 2 Samuel 7, the Lord did say, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. If you know the life of Solomon, that's a pretty profound promise, which God kept. And Paul applies this promise to believers. Whether in Corinth being tempted by some confusing teachers or whether in Clifton Park, New York, or wherever we are, God says, if you come to me through Jesus Christ, I will be your father. I will discipline you and I will raise you and I will give you your inheritance. My steadfast love will not depart from you. Oh, how we humanly live for our Father's blessing. I don't know if you received your Father's blessing. I'm not sure if I received mine. Young men really want to please their fathers. Let me ask you, sons and daughters of the Most High, 
Do you live for your father's blessing? Are you careful about your associations in the world for the sake of his honor and the the work he's doing in you? Do you become entangled in things that are good but not the best? God will be a father to us. He will lead and guide and correct so we can get his help in the whole process. Before we leave this point about promises made, I want to point out something that it doesn't appear to be a a promise, but it's a help. Uh, In verse 1 of chapter 7, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion. How? In the fear of God. And my point here is that the fear of God will help us focus. The fear of God will help us focus, won't it? When you know who God is, that he is holy and just. He's not one to be trifled with. He is not your butler. He is not your grandpa in heaven. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he has an agenda to put away sin and corruption and to wipe away everything that causes tears and uncleanness and to bring about a new heaven and a new earth. We need to live in awe of him, in reverence of him, in fear of him. The Greek word here is phobos. Nothing too technical about that, but as Jesus taught, it's the fear of a son of his beloved father. That will help you so much. When you want to be with the cool gang or the, the people at the water cool, you want to laugh at the scurrilous jokes. Or you want to join the crowd that say that euphemism for profanity about Brandon? I hope that doesn't come out of a Christian's mouth. When you're struggling to say, do I want to go with the world or do I want to walk with the upright and holy? Remember the fear of God. The one to whom you will give an account. It helps me. It helps me every day. It's not a fear out of dread, trembling. But it is the deepest, most reverent respect I can imagine. It will help us focus, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Let me close with just these three reminders A recap, a summary, some takeaways from what we've looked at here. First, the experience of salvation should follow the gift of salvation. Those who are born again should walk in newness of life. If you've been saved from the penalty of your sins, from hell and death, you should experience that salvation. What do I mean? You should, even in the present tense, be turning from sin, turning from sinful entanglements, from unbelief towards belief. You should be living in the present tense, living out your salvation. It's not quite sanctification. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just reminding you the three tenses of salvation. It comes out in Romans 5, for instance. We have been saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. God, our Savior, is still doing a work in us. We've been justified. We're being sanctified. We will be glorified. Are you experiencing that? It's a process. You're traded from one team to the next. You've changed allegiance from one party to the other when you become a Christian using imaginary language. And there are costs. There are hard feelings. There are misunderstandings sometimes. But we must do what our Father calls us to do. And he will save us from those entanglements. You remember John Newton? John Newton, who was a sailor and slave trader for a while. He became a Christian and he still captained a slave ship. It's hard to stomach how he could do that. But according to one scholar said Newton served as a mate and then captain of a number of slave ships, hoping as a Christian to restrain the worst excesses of the slave trade, promoting the life of God and the soul of man of both his crew and his African cargo. He tried. 
But eventually that yoke had to be broken. And it was. But it took a couple years. God may be taking you out of certain situations, out of certain relationships and influences and adjusting you so that you resemble more and more the person of Psalm 1. Newton said something wonderful. His testimony as he experienced that holiness. He said, I am not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not now what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. He was experiencing that salvation. Are you experiencing your salvation? (laughs) Number two, there are dangers in the unbelieving world and they are real. Being unequally yoked isn't just a preference, it's a command because there are dangers, dangers to your spirit. Paul names names when he talked about a fellow in the New Testament who was in love with the world or someone whose God was his stomach and they went away because they were yoked in partnership, they were in agreement, they were in alliance, they were in fellowship with things other than Christ and it proved dangerous to them. Derek Prime says it is as hard to live in the world and be unaffected by it as it is to go swimming without getting wet. Okay, that's like impossible. That's not just hard. That's impossible, right? Unless I suppose you wear a wetsuit. But... And then he says further, or by working in the garden without getting dirty. Christians, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. We have to be careful. Test yourself. Is any relationship, any connection, any group I participate with, is it drawing me away from Christ? And who God wants me to be and what God wants me to do. If it's not, stay with him and be salt and light. But we must ask. And remember, finally, the expectations of the Lord are for our holiness. The separateness, the distinctness. We can't serve two masters. The Christian is called to serve the Lord God. He gives us promises and help. So beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. Such a simple concept and command. Give us wisdom to understand it and courage and grace to obey it. May we happily stand with Christ, even when others will not. And Father, may we be slow to cut off relationships, but when they are gangrene or bad influences, may we do what must be done. Give us wisdom. Give us grace. Give us patience with others as they strive to obey your word as well. Be at work among us, Father, for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.